0: Carrie. Hi, Carrie. It's Jason. Um, Just to get started, um, how long have you worked with the Sierra Fund?
1: I've been at the Sierra Fund since 2007.
0: And where were you before that?
1: Yep. I finished my PhD at the University of Washington in forest hydrology. Um, That ended in 2004. And actually, the first job I got after that was with the Natural Heritage Institute.
0: Um, Could you uh, give me a brief description on what forest hydrology is?
1: Yeah. Forest hydrology is understanding how watersheds work, and that involves the forests that are on them in different environments. There's a, there's a lot of differences from the North Pacific Northwest up in Washington compared to where we are here in Nevada County. So forest uh, eco- ecology, fire water runoff, so surface water, groundwater. But I mostly looked at riparian zones and salmonid habitat in lowland agricultural streams north of seattle
0: um what inspired you to work in the field of environmental protection and advocacy
1: i always knew that i wanted to be a scientist i love asking questions of the environment i grew up in oregon along the mckenzie river and um, i was a river guide all through my end of high school and undergraduate years at the university of oregon and uh, so to borrow a, a line from my colleague I was a curious voter.
0: What would you consider to be the most significant issue locally here in Grass Valley, Nevada City? Uh
1: Well, I've been working on understanding the impacts of the California Gold Rush to both our ecosystems and our communities. And that's an issue that is really significant for this region. That was a huge impact to the Native people that were living here that are still here and uh, to our watersheds and how they function the forest, the result of the condition that they're in today, the condition of our streams and rivers. So understanding the California gold rush has been a big part of my me learning California ecology because really coming down from Washington, I started to look around and wonder what happened here. It was clear that a lot, if not all, um, of the earth had been turned over and that our forests were uh, second or third growth. And that was all new, and with those fresh eyes, I became even more curious about the big question of, of what happened here, and how is it still impacting us.
0: That's really fascinating to me, actually, how you say the second or third growth of the forest and how it seems like everything had been turned over. Coming yeah. from, obviously, up in the Pacific Northwest, where logging was a really big deal, how is that different to the mining operations, say, down here in California?
1: Yeah, so it's in part different because of the what we're going to call natural fire regime of this region. So fire is much more naturally frequent in this area. And that means, you know, a return interval that fire should burn over the land in a low intensity way, you know, every three to seven years here. And so the forest ecosystems are adapted to that. And the native tribes that were here stewarding the land for thousands of years knew that and used that as a management technique for these uh, forests. That is a really different thing from the Pacific Northwest. This fire return interval is not the same. And so the forest there um, and the logging practices and the impacts that those have were followed by a, a different recovery process than here when the forests here in California were logged really to build the towns and even provide timber for the mines. You know, because these towns were, were in the forest and because of fire, there was a lot of fire suppression after that. And so we had our forests grow back in a really crowded way, but with really small, smaller trees of a lot of the same species right next to each other. So the disturbance regimes of these different regions is naturally very different, and therefore how they recovered after logging is really different.
0: Speaking on, I guess, the information locally, um, how do you guys go about gathering data?
1: Sure. So um, the Sierra Fund has what we call um, a theory of change. (laughs) We understand that we're a relatively small nonprofit in Mm -hmm. Nevada City, but we have a mission that is Sierra-wide, and so we engage uh, working groups of advisors to help us with our projects in both understanding issues and selecting sites to be pilot projects. And so from those pilot projects, we then learn from the natural environment, from the relationships we build with people who are stewarding those areas and are able to inform both better management practices and policy, sometimes at the state level, and have region wide impact. So we collect data at the project, pilot project level, if you will, and that helps inform what what it is we're doing. So we do meadow restoration projects using process-based restoration. That's really an important design philosophy. So the point of that type of restoration is to restore the processes that maintain the environment and the dynamic nature of those environments in meadows. Uh, We also do mine remediation um, at, hydraulic mine sites. We're looking at using biochar to help remediate the soils at hydraulic mine sites, build back soil health in those areas that were really disturbed. So we collect data on the things that were changing. So water quality, soil health, vegetation transect, wildlife response to these changes.
0: Yeah. Talking on soil health especially, um, how would you say the uh, lasting impacts of mining affect industries such as agriculture in our area?
1: that's a great question. I think that we don't know a lot. I mean, Mm -hmm. it really depends on where the agriculture is taking place. And if it's on an old mine site, obviously there could be contamination issues. The use of water for irrigating crops is another interesting thing that was changed a lot with the California Gold Rush, mainly the conveyance of water. We have our ditches and our canals that we think of as maybe they've always been there. We love walking along them but they were actually built to get water to the mine sites. And today they're used to convey water to agriculture downstream, let's say all the way to Marysville sometimes. Uh, So the way that we convey water has been changed as a result of of the gold rush. And depending on where the site is, you may have water that is either from underground or surface water, and that the quality of that water may be impacted by where it's come from, which might be impacted by mining. We're trying to understand things at site-specific level. Most farmers know the quality of the water that they're using. And then the other important thing to say is most of the metals that might have been unearthed from mining and pulverized and and made more accessible for transport by water are what we call particulate-bound metals. So they're in their inorganic form, by and large, and they're traveling with silt and clay. Um, So they are easily filtered out Uh, They easily settle out. And I don't believe that they're bioaccumulating, if you will, in our agricultural crops. But there's always more good questions to ask.
0: Definitely. I know you mentioned earlier, being a smaller organization, you work with other entities. What are a couple other organizations or government agencies you work with? And how do you achieve uh, common environmental goals?
1: Yeah, so most of our work is funded by state or federal grants. And so when we write uh, up a pilot project, for a grant application, we do so with partners. So we have partners at UC Davis. We have partners at San Francisco State University. We have partners at CSU Chico, where I'm actually a faculty as well. And we have partners at other nonprofits, uh, Circle, Swoomis Core, uh, and many others. And when we come together and the many different disciplines that are represented, we can create a stronger team and do more interdisciplinary work. And that's really key to asking some of these environmental science questions, because um, obviously there might be many aspects going on in the environment, right? right? And so having <laughs> people of many different backgrounds helps us uh, understand and, and quantify those impacts.
0: Talking on, I guess, sort of our local um, watershed again, What are what's a recent project where we've seen some kind of measurable change locally?
1: Sure. So one of the first projects that the Sierra Fund began working on to understand the ongoing impacts of the gold rush was our beloved state park, um, mm. Malakoff Diggins. Many, many school children have visited that as part of their fourth grade classroom and seen the the big impact that hydraulic mining had. And so Sierra Fund got a watershed assessment grant from the Sierra Nevada Conservancy to assess that site. And I actually had six different master's students finish their theses under our direction at that site. So we really did a pretty broad and deep understanding of what the ongoing issues were there for state parks benefit so that they could use that information to figure out what the next steps were. And one of the things we helped quantify was just how much sediment and metals associated with that sediment are still coming out of the Malakoff diggins pit through Hiller Tunnel. And Parks has since gone on and been successful at getting state funds, um, general funds, millions of dollars, to hire a consulting firm to help them come up with a plan to mitigate those water quality impacts. And I am very excited that they have put forward an initial study at this time. The the consulting firm with State Parks has put forward a series of different um, actions that would improve water quality for the long term. And I believe some of that will be taking place this summer. That is the current trajectory. Wow. So it's already gone through environmental review, and we're going to see some changes at Malakoff Diggins.
0: That's really Um, cool
1: one shining example of state parks taking on these complicated issues is at empire mine which is a you know our famous hard rock mine site that many of us have visited and they have those treatment ponds passive treatment ponds so Mm -hmm. that they can treat the water that comes up out of the ground there before it goes into our creeks Uh, the magenta drain being the one that i'm thinking of and you know as many people as go and to see the, the awesome model that's at Empire Mine or the main shaft that walk around the yard. I think just as many people have come to see the treatment ponds and say, wow, how does this happen here in California where there's innovative, state-of-the-art work? And I, other countries, other states have been benefited from, from what we learned at, at uh, Empire Mine and that wow. project. So I'm really hoping Malakoff Diggins can be seen as such a, a shining example as well. Change is always hard, and I know yeah. that we love that site as a community. It's what I call a beautiful disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and it will stay that way. We will, what we see when we drive up to that site and look at will stay looking mostly the same. But I'm really hopeful that we can improve some of the water quality issues there.
0: Definitely. You're talking about these um, educational opportunities, too. So it sounds a lot like what the Sierra Fund does is also educating and inspiring others to sort of pursue, I guess, a career or interest in these areas of environmental protection.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. That's key when you're a small nonprofit <laughs> to, you know, the highest compliment is others copying these efforts. <laughs> we, need, we need the entire conservation community to be interested in addressing the impacts of the California gold rush. We need as many people who are interested in meadow restoration, which is a lot through Mm -hmm. the Sierra Meadows Partnership, maybe 200 different organizations. We meet regularly and share our lessons learned and our projects and our data around meadow restoration. I really hope we can do something like that around hydraulic mine remediation. We just need to attract people's interest to understanding these sites as part of our watershed and that by restoring them, we're restoring streams and rivers um, and habitat and soil carbon and all of the things that make our watersheds resilient when we take on these uh, scarred sites.
0: Definitely. Could you give me a little bit more detail about how these factors, I like think you said, soil carbon and um, what makes a watershed especially resilient?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that makes our watersheds especially resilient is what we call a disturbance regime. So if anybody who's trained for a marathon knows that they need to work out regularly, right, and they're going to be sore afterwards, but that makes them stronger, that's a disturbance regime they're imposing on their bodies to get stronger, (laughs) right? Yeah. And um, our watersheds are a lot the same way. We have a high-frequency disturbance regime with both fire, rain, and floods. We have a very flashy system. We're, compare that to Oregon or Washington where it just kind of rains little bits all the time. Right Here when it rains, it rains hard, and the streams come up, and then they go back down, right? So we have a, a flashy hydrology, and I believe that this disturbance regime, you know, right now our forests are a little bit out of shape because we haven't had fire on the landscape. And we need prescribed fire and cultural fire To be returned to the landscape for our fires, for our watersheds to be, uh, in the shape that they, they should be in and that they might be in if we hadn't been doing fire suppression for all these years. Mm -hmm. So we need to welcome fire back onto the landscape in safe ways. That means, of course, clearing first so that fire can pass through at a low intensity and make our uh, watersheds even even more resilient for runoff, for habitat, for soil. Our ecology co-evolved with that fire regime, and for it to be resilient, that needs to be returned. Similarly with uh, uh, with water, you know, we have, you know, just this awesome hydrology in this area, and our streams and rivers can really pump out high flows and then return to these, you know, beautiful summer base flows Uh, So we're going to be in good shape, I think, on a resiliency scale as we go through climate change, more so than many regions, because ours was adapted to handle this kind of variability.
0: Definitely. As we sort of wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit more about climate change and how you foresee that affecting, I guess, our watershed, especially as we get these weather events that are becoming more and more of the extremes. How is that going to affect us going into the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the big thing to remember is we're still learning how it's going to affect us. there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of models and efforts to try and understand the ways that it's going to affect us, but we're learning. And I think our region is uh, in a gray area. A lot of the early climate change models, you know, didn't include the Sierra Nevada (laughs) in the same way that the resolution is able to now. So we're still learning. One of the ways that it's going to affect our region is that there's likely to be more precipitation as rain than as snow. Mm -hmm. So that means that our snowpack will change. And other features in the watershed that retain water higher longer might become more important, uh, like meadows, like um, groundwater recharge. So um, changing our snowpack. I think we're going to be able to expect more fire (laughs) as a result of the hot, dry uh, climates that come in the future. And so getting ready to receive that fire on the landscape in healthy ways is really important. And people are working so hard to uh, do the fuels reduction work and um, create prescribed burn associations, work with CAL FIRE, work with Forest Service to get prescribed fire back on the landscape, and of course work with tribes to get cultural burning back on the landscape as well. So uh, water, fire, Uh, We're going to see a change in vegetation. We can see a lot of our pine trees dying because of the stress from drought and and water. Um, What returns might be more oak dominated? And this is, uh, you know, forest succession, kind of 101. But Mm -hmm. we're going to see a change in the vegetation as we go, for sure. And I think we're going to see a change in our communities as well. There's with sea level rise there's going to be places that become uninhabitable and I think we're going to see more people moving to our region and putting pressure on our communities if you will or contributing to our communities mm-hmm. as well over time. So we'll see we'll see inland migration.
0: Definitely, definitely.